You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit Irreverent FM for more content from my friends. Hello, hello, and welcome to Bad Words, an evangelical podcast where we give toxic theology the read that it deserves by taking another look at some of the books that have been given major influence in evangelical Christianity. I am Janice Legata, and this is a meeting of the Bad Book Club. We are reading Captivating by John and Stacey Eldridge, losing the plot on womanhood one chapter at a time. We'll have a reading of the opening paragraph, I'll give a few thoughts, and then join one of the members of the Bad Book Club for a discussion. In the end, we'll hear the closing paragraph, and I'll give some closing thoughts, all with the intention of leaving you free to think your own thoughts about the chapter, the book, and all things really so. Without further ado, let's get into... Captivating. Chapter 4. Carrie woke on her sixth birthday to the sound of singing. She knew instantly that it was her birthday, her very own day. She opened her eyes to discover that balloons had been tied all around her bed, a colorful canopy. The celebration had begun. Her mom was standing by her bedside, holding a coffee cake with a lit candle in it and her dad was there too, and both of them were singing, happy birthday to you, oh, unhindered joy, squeals of delight, kisses, hugs, and hoorays, welcomed her into this day, just as she had been welcomed into the world six years earlier, her father whispered to his little princess that he loved her, her mother reminded her again of how happy she was to have such a wonderful daughter, there was no doubt about it, this little girl was delighted in, life for Carrie was closer to life as God meant it to be for every little girl, She knew that her father cherished her. She was his princess. He was her knight in shining armor. He wanted to spend time with her. Carrie knew her mother loved her and wanted her. Hers was a world where her father protected her. Her mother nurtured her. And she was enjoyed. This is the soil a girl's soul was meant to grow in. This was the garden her young heart was meant to flourish within. Every little girl should be so loved, so welcomed, seen, known, treasured. From this place she can become a strong and beautiful and confident woman. Welcome back to Bad Words for Girls, a.k.a. Captivating. We're starting this chapter with another longer-than-usual reading because, as is sometimes the case with these chapter preambles, the opening paragraph by itself just doesn't say anything. There are so many words wasted in this book, and the super-cynical side of me suspects that John buys into all that bullshit about women using way more words than men, and so in trying to nail the character of the woman he is pretending is writing this book, he is being overly verbose. And John Eldridge is already over everything as the man character he lives his life pretending to be so his impression of a woman is doubly annoying and so that's how we end up with the story of Carrie's sixth birthday opening this chapter and I think the most important thing to know about the story of Carrie is that what you heard is the whole story they make a huge deal about how much Carrie's parents and specifically her father enjoys her and what a blessing it is for her to have that kind of experience and then they never mention Carrie again so Did it work? Did being enjoyed by her father work the appropriate magic and turn her into the opposite of a wounded woman? We don't know, but I'm sure John Stacy wants us to assume it did because John Stacy wants us to assume a lot of things and take all of their assumptions as facts. So brace yourself for that as we bite into this big old nothing burger of a chapter with this week's captivating book club member. I am Sarah Heath. I guess in some ways, formally Rev Sarah Heath. I'm still ordained in the United Methodist Church. Hopefully we'll be after this recording as well. I was a pastor for 16 years, got incredibly burnt out and sort of, I've been in this process 
of figuring out uh, what does it mean to be in rev recovery, which is this idea of I was a full-time professional Christian for a really long time. Uh, I grew up in Canada and moved to the South, and I think that's an important part of my story that will particularly play into today because I chose purity culture and evangelicalism for myself in college, which was very confusing to my parents who are not from an evangelical background. <laughs> like my mom thought I was pregnant at one point, uh, and I was like, how could you? think I would be sleeping with my boyfriend and she's like you've been with him for three and a half years I don't know how I'm wrong in this conversation <laughs> but like this is this is sort of the background uh, and so then I went into ministry and was part of a super progressive community which was really great but also just worked a lot and so my idea of the divine has shifted a lot and so I'm part of a podcasting group which is how Janice and I got to know each other kind of working through what does it mean to be faith adjacent or part of a faith in this like really interesting time where I think a lot of things are coming into the light that needed to come into the light. So I am no longer a full-time clergy person. I actually coach and consult folks who are uh, in those clergy session areas still doing all that. But I also work with communities that are trying to become more inclusive and diverse as well as just kind of not be as much of a dick. (laughs) Sort of like how can we be less harmful? Uh, But I also work for a coffee company where I do a lot of their administration stuff, but sort of like at a director level. And then I also get to do their culture and community um, kind of creation, which is super fun. Uh, And that's kind of my day job right now as well as I, this is a fun one. I don't even think you know this about me. I just started teaching at a, like a makerspace uh, STEM for students that are between 10 and 16. So I teach wood shop and science Like it's all put together for 10 to 16 year olds. So my life is just really doesn't make sense. And yet growing up in the chaotic situation that is evangelicalism totally makes sense. Both the gifts and the, yeah, and the challenges. So that's a little bit about me, I guess. I have a, a bunch of podcasts. I've got one called Rev Covery. I've got one called Making Spaces that will be coming back soon. Uh, and then I have one with my friend Kevin Garcia. And they and I just do it when we want to do it. And it's called Your Favorite Ants. So if you catch it, you're one of the lucky ones. <laughs> Two ADHD humans trying to put out a podcast is really fun. Oh, there's a lot there. And I am always, always fascinated with people who chose evangelicalism. Oh, yeah. No. Uh-huh. And especially... I used to say especially as adults, because then I'm at this point I don't really consider the twenties are adulthood, but like the young twenties, that's still that's still childhood. I was like eighteen. I think really, if I'm honest, and maybe folks who I think my friends that were people of color in seminary and I talked a lot about this because when you were trying to become part of. So I moved from another country. And even though this country looks very similar, we have very different social and cultural things. But it's like you can pass, right? You can go in. So then you you try to assimilate to the primary kind of culture around you. And so for me, moving at 13 was such a pivotal time to be trying to figure out who the hell I was. And then I moved to Mississippi where the question, every other question was like, what youth group do you belong to? And and in some really like good ways in that like, I had friends really quickly because we went to a church that had a big youth group, right? Now the flip side is it was very different than my culture and I was having to assimilate and learn really quickly, you know, and I was just really leaning in and loving on and doing all those things that I was learning. And in some ways it was a way for me to fit in and not feel so lonely in an environment where I might look like the people around me, but I think, and I grew up in a very different culture than they did. Like from the point, like when we moved and my first friends came over and they opened the fridge and there was like beer and wine in there because we hadn't gone grocery shopping yet. And my, you know, my parents were like 42 or three or whatever. And 
my friends were like, whose beer is that? I was like, oh, that's my mom's Guinness. <laughs> my mom's British. And they were just like, your mom drinks? And I immediately was like, yes. You know, there's all these things like, they were like, my mom drinks wine, but in the basement, no one knows. Like, it was just sort of this like different ethos. And at, the, at 13 and 14, I think you're just trying to like, how can I fit in? How can I, how can I be enough? How can I be part of this? And so I think I chose it because I just wanted to be American. And that's what I thought Americanism was. Which is wild because as Christians will tell you, we have been persecuted for so long and have, you know, <laughs> had to hide our beliefs. In Mississippi, I'm going to say that is poor. The persecution is so not there. <laughs> <laughs> and to be clear to anyone listening, not from this country, it's nowhere. It does not exist. That is not. In there the is. United States. No, it is zero places is. in the United States. <laughs> Like maybe Seattle in like one neighborhood and like maybe like part of New York, but it's like a very specific part of Brooklyn. <laughs> like that's like the only place. Yeah. It would be like the Hasidic neighborhood. And, that's, <laughs> and that's by it. persecution, I mean, they maybe don't want you to bring your Bible out of the coffee shop. Like maybe <laughs> that, that's the level maybe. of persecution. Or you can bring it. Just be quiet about it. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> please like, oh. don't play your please don't play your worship songs on our planes if you consider that persecution <laughs> literally i don't know if you saw that but like there were people like enraged that people would think it was rude like i don't care if you're playing like i don't if i have my earphones in don't talk to me and definitely don't sing to me why do you think this is okay and then they're singing to like open the eyes of my heart like stop <laughs> Stop, no. Just to bring about the kingdom. I, what is happening? Is this well, God's best? I, I because wish, this is not I great. I wish persecution was real. I want that for you guys. I want it. Mm -hmm. But it's not happening. <laughs> I want persecution oh. for you guys. I want you to actually experience <laughs> oh, it. Like those are my thoughts and prayers for Christians. Yeah. Like if you had to work for it, I remember Stanley Harawas one time had an article and however you feel about him, I, he was one of my professors, but he had an article about <laughs> if Christianity was considered like the LGBTQIA community, like the LGBTQIA community, which there are LGBTQIA Christians, by the way, newsflash, but his point was that this idea that like have an identity, bond together, <laughs> care about each other. He was like, I feel like if anyone should teach us anything, it's the LGBTQIA community. Imagine that, the marginalized teaching about Weird. It's almost like that was in the Bible. These are a lot of crazy ideas and we haven't even gotten into this book yet oh dear just... mm -hmm. i mean off the air i was just yeah. saying i thought we were friends and then you made me reread this i apologized i apologized up front no it's good i, I chose sorry. it i did sign up for this i signed up for this yeah much like evangelicalism and purity <laughs> culture. So many... i do have a good therapist <laughs> if you want to talk to her about me that's fair <laughs> like this is my friend i'm concerned yeah like when a book starts with the question, how do we recover essential femininity? That's their, that, that was their like intro question. I'm like, what is essential? Is that an oil? Is that an essential oil? What is a non-essential femininity? You know, <laughs> if there's one, there has to be the other. Yeah, I, uh, I put a little lavender in my bath and then when I get out, I put some femininity behind my ears. <laughs> look, look. <laughs> And you can tell the days when I don't. Mm -hmm. Because it then I essential. speak my mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. All right. So captivating. When, where, how, why did you yeah. first become aware of this book? Yeah. So I had to reach back into my brain. And I, it was, it was a weird thing because 
I realized I read a book called Lady in Waiting, which Mm -hmm. is the idea of the book is like, you're waiting for your guy, but while you're waiting for your guy, don't worry because you can date Jesus. You're welcome. Uh, And then you can also, guys, did you know you can do great things even if you are not partnered? Did you know? Like while you're waiting for God. So I read that book and then I read Captivating because all my guy friends had read um, his book and it was... (laughs) Like my friends were like, I took a bus across the country because he like challenged me to like really live outside of my norm. And my friends from Nashville were like taking buses and doing (laughs) doing really like, well, I should read the girl version, I guess. Although the guy version sounds more fun. It's kind of like Boy Scouts back in the day where you're like, I don't really want to make another macaroni necklace. You guys are like camping in the woods and making swords. And it feels the same way. Like this book was a little bit like captivating. And the other book was like, you should go into the wild. And I'm like, can I, is that not essential femininity? No. Okay. It is not. I mean, even if you read, yeah. So I, I, I remember just thinking, again, I I have to, as much as I joke, I have to admit that I was trying so hard to become part of a culture that I wasn't. And I remember sitting in a room full of young adult women who were reading this book together and feeling the most outside I've ever felt. Because in my my head, I was like, uh, anyone? No one's here? Okay. And so the shame I felt because it felt like a brokenness within me that would question something like this because that's the story, right? Like it's the, I call it my frozen theology that can steal, don't feel. Um, like <laughs> if, and we learn it in the South, right? Like we learn how to, you know, I was a sorority girl. So I knew how to like sit smiling when I was like, this is not great. And so I, I was trying so hard not to rock the boat, but also as a fairly intelligent woman who knew how to question text, I read these books and was like, this can't be it. Everyone else thinks this is it. So the problem must be me. The common denominator is me. So that was my experience with this book. I, were, I, I was probably like, I'm going to say 20 when I read it. Yeah. Oof. And that's, and that's I was think- prime time for this Right. Book. And I was thinking too, as I read it, some of these sentences would have hit me so differently at that time. Yeah. Like I would have seen her as this like hero, not a hero, but like, oh, she has it figured out, you know. Which is what this book purports and what she, yeah, wants you to think that, okay, youngins, young women, here is, here is some sage advice from, from one of your elders. Here's, here's how to do it. Here's how to be. Well, and it's also this, I, there's some language that I thought was really a bait and switch, like what my friend calls a chocolate covered poo. It's like this idea that shame is a problem because you and I would have read that and been like, yeah, shame is a problem. We shouldn't feel shame about this stuff. We, that felt right. Like our souls, I think our souls would have recognized that as like a helpful narrative. And then it's like this, but God, like, it's just, it's like a weird, like they hand you something and then they like, ta-da, something different. So for me, yeah, it feels like the assumption of brokenness is like just over and over again because you're reading it and even if you're not feeling particularly broken that day, you're like, maybe I am. What am I hiding? So yeah, Yeah, that was my... This book was very much written for its intended audience. Yeah, I read it in college too and it resonated so much because I was raised and primed for it to resonate. Like it's, it's just feeding into all the insecurities that evangelicalism gave us saying, yeah, here's, here's how you should feel about these things. You're like, oh, and if I don't, oh, that's something with me. Why this part isn't res with me or why I don't like this. Right. The rub is not the problem of the, the of the text. The And almost the Bible is treated this way too, right? The rub is not a problem with the text. The rub is a problem with you. And I like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. So you read it then. <laughs> You've already heard a little bit about how you feel about reading it now. Yeah. But did you expect 
I don't know, because again, you agreed to this. You signed. I totally did. This is, guys, this was consensual. I'm being a jerk. It was absolutely consensual. (laughs) But did you expect, yeah, to feel the way you ended up feeling about it? I think this is going to sound weird maybe, but it gave me an opportunity to have some graciousness for young Sarah. Because sometimes I'm mad at her. Like she got us here and I'm like, you chose this idiot. Like, like as an example, Janice, I had a, a memory that when I was in college, I used to work out with this guy who was an exotic dancer in New Orleans. And I thought that was the biggest sinful thing when I found out. He did that in order to pay for medical school. He was Catholic. So I was worried about his like salvation. Never mind that my whole family is Catholic, guys. <laughs> okay, we'll just put that somewhere and deal with that. But I now like one day I was like, baby Sarah could have dated a gorgeous magic mic of a man. But I was worried about his salvation and constantly inviting him to Bible study instead of like noticing his lats. Like this was, so sometimes I'm mad at tiny Sarah because she was doing the best she could to just like fit in and be good enough and pure enough. And so reading this book, I'm like, oh, there's a reason why she made some of the decisions she did. Or even like, you know, I had um, eating disorder issues in college and all these sort of things. But as I'm reading this book, I'm hearing her describing captivating as an external beauty. And even some of the ways I felt about my own family, this book helps me have a little bit of understanding around like that, you know, it describes your dad needs to be this like prince, like you're supposed to be his princess. It's like really strange Donald Trump and his daughter experience where you're like, oh, like, I don't think I am my daddy's little princess. I mean, my name is Sarah, so it doesn't mean princess, but like, that's not how my family exists. And so I think it it gave me, I didn't, I think I didn't expect to feel sort of graciousness for young me. I wasn't mad as I read it. I thought I'd be madder. It was almost like I kept putting it down and laughing. And and I think the number of times I went, whoa, my dog like kept like, what is happening? Because like even the language around Adam and Eve, good Lord. The sin of Eve. She she was just not an essential Christian or feminine person. She did not have the oils. She did not. She did not bathe herself in the essential. (laughs) She let that snake in. What? That feels very like sexual at this point now that I think about it. I've never thought about that till this very moment. And even like this idea of like this woman like self-blamed herself. I think I also had had some compassion for her as well. As she's describing like I gained weight and clearly it was because I wasn't comfortable in my own body and it was like and, and I put on a lot of makeup and I was hiding and maybe that is true. Maybe that is true. But maybe like there's something else going on beyond like my inability to listen to God made me gain weight. That's a weird connection that you've made. And at different times in in both books, I just, I feel bad for, I'm like, you guys are not okay. Like you guys. No, I like literally thought about a wellness check. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's like nervous to like think about young, like I get how it set me on a path, like these books. Cause, so yeah, Captivating was one of them. But a lot of these books like set me on a path uh, of sh- like shame and guilt, which is weird because all of it proposed, like all of it was like, no, you're going to, we're going to help you get rid of shame and guilt. And I, and I so badly wanted to get rid of those things because humans do. And I'm realizing like, oh no, it just like, I put on a different coat, but it was the same problem. Yeah here's a new a new shame yeah here's one. a here's a better one is it for this season You're right so what chapter did you have and what i had chapter about? four yeah about how our dads should be captivated by us 
that creep you out at all? Like this whole both books again are strangely like accidentally sexual a lot. Like you're like you guys, why'd you write that like that? Like don't do that. And then and then in both books, different times they are purposefully very sexually explicit and just awkward. But this whole and that's that's not completely on them. This is an evangelical thing. Like, oh, this totally. Whole idea of of God as Father and and lover. And I'm like, you can't you can't do both. God choose one, but we can't we can't be blurring these lines. And they do. And that's much. how we get to some of the situations we get to. And I think like this idea of a young woman trying to get her dad's attention breaks my heart. And, and the language that she used over and over again was like an external, like if you were pretty enough, if you were the right weight, then you would captivate your dad's attention. What? He in, Your father should enjoy you. What? That language is like, I think dad should be attentive. I think they should be receptive. But the word enjoy, and maybe that's just my own stuff, but like it, it was, it was very like, oh, I don't. You know, as someone who's worked with folks who have had assault as part of their childhood, it was really problematic language. Yeah. And she, both of them, just accidentally, they just accidentally reveal things or just say things that like, you know, when you grow up in your house and you're like, oh, okay, I guess this is how life is. And then you get older and you're like, oh, not everybody. Right, totally. It's like when I got to college and realized hanging up stuff with my friends and my family, we speak part French because we grew up in Canada, but like not really, we're Anglophones. But when we are doing like come see, come saw, it's like hold it like this. And I recognize that half of my friends didn't know what the hell my family was saying. It was the first time I realized that sometimes we speak French. I was like, oh, not every other family uses French randomly. So like directions for me are à la droite, à la gauche. So I think French before I think English directions, which is weird. Anglophone. No reason for speaking French. It's just the home I grew up in. But I didn't realize until, right? And it's the same thing with this. Like, you read this and you're like, I think a lot uh, as I've gotten older. Most of my friends are uh, of a more secular vibe, particularly since leaving ministry. And I'm imagining them reading this book. And I feel like, and I don't know if I can cuss on this, boop it off if you want to, but I yeah. feel like my friends would put down this book and be like, the fuck is this? <laughs> like, <laughs> Like women learn their value and the value of womanhood. This isn't a direct quote. I like wrote this down. Women learn the value of themselves and the value of womanhood from their father. 51%, I think it was just released this year and I'd have to make sure it's exact. 51% of households are not together. You're telling me that in communities where fathers are not present, women just assume they're not valued because I gotta tell you, some of my friends that grew up without the patriarchy they feel value and beauty and like their whole and it is a strange thing to say that men have the ability to tell me my worth and you're telling me that begins at the moment I come out of my mother like depending on the way my dad looks like ta-da and if he's disappointed like she literally tells a story about a girl whose dad wanted a boy I thought we were about to hear one of those stories and then she became masked like you know what I mean? Like I thought, I thought we are like two senate, like two moments away from that, blaming the sexuality of children on the passiveness of their dads. Like I think we were close to that. Oh, that is chapter four of Wild at Heart. Yeah, but he oh, blames I that. it on it is the passiveness of dads, but it's mostly the smothering of mothers. These books. Wild at Heart, particularly, but both of them hate women. They hate women. She says she. Who really wrote it? We don't know. 
yeah, women derive all their value from their fathers. And then he also said, like, boys also derive all their value from their fathers. And, like, manhood, manhood can only be bestowed by masculinity. So, like, for both male and female children, fathers are the most important figure. And mothers, mothers basically ruin everything. I just have such a, experientially, I think I, I, I just have such a tough time with this because I have friends who are incredibly, um, I think not the stereotypical male, but like really embody, I think what we would, you know, consider it healthy masculinity, you know, um, whatever we're trying to figure that out and define that. But like, and a lot of them were raised by single mothers. You know, my, my ex was raised by a single mom and he, like the way that he values women and their intelligence, it truthfully is one of the things that attracted me to him and his ability to hold masculinity in a way like dude works in the construction zone, but he, he, when he goes to soccer games with his dudes from the construction thing, he wears the, the gay pride Jersey. Cause he, and, and these dudes were like, are you worried people are going to think you, you're gay? He's like, why would I care if they think I'm gay? I'm not, but like, why would I care? Why would that be a problem? And like, so all these other dudes are like, oh yeah, good point. Shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> you know, like, and he was raised by a single mom. Like his dad was present, but not, you know, and I don't think there's any, I don't know. I just think when we, we create these problems when we say this and when we miss out on the idea of like community, like I think we can have masculine, feminine, non-binary energy it completes us, but that doesn't have to be in our immediate family. And once it became in our immediate family is when we saw some pretty sick things happening. The whole evangelical idea of masculinity and femininity, like it's so tricky because I don't want to, I don't want to go to the other extreme and be like, well, I mean, to me, men are pretty pointless and, and whatever. No, I think people play their parts and if men want to be good fathers, they can be. But yeah, if, if you're like, you can only have one and you have to pick one essential parent, I'm going to go with moms every time. It's just as a like, continuation of like patriarchy at a level that's because we're threatening, right? We have all the nourishment to keep right. a baby alive. We yeah. actually birth the baby. Yes, we need, we need you to participate, obviously. But it, that's scary, right? It is. And I think both of these books are written out of, out of insecurity, out of their own insecurities and their own fears of trying, trying to make the world more what they want it to be. But I also think like, we don't know, we don't know what family and community could really look like. Like we've latched onto this nuclear kind of idea that isn't, it's not in the Bible. You know, so much of the Bible is, is talking about widows and children I don't know. I mean, this book obviously does blame everything wrong in the world on women. Right. Ultimately. So it is the sin of well, Eve. Well, I love that they said like passive dads are the problem like Adam. So Adam was a passive man and that's his sin. <laughs> like, oh, he should have stood up to Eve. And I realized, so I had this moment where I was laughing at that. And then I realized, oh sh shit, I think I heard that sermon when I was in college. I think I actually heard that exact sermon when I was in college. And what did that do to me who was, you know, a fairly strong woman who had shame about being a strong woman? Like that's real. Who was afraid of my own power in some ways because I couldn't be partnered if I'm a strong woman because when I'm told is like, you know, when we talk about equal partnership, that's not true. We need to be like less so they can feel more. And you exist in that if you're a heterosexual female, there is that like, well, how do I like fit into this? How do I shrink so I can make space for someone else instead of like, here, we're going to come at this at the same level. That just doesn't seem to be a thing. So I think there's just this book continues the patriarchy. And I just wanted to yell, like, where is the science? Like, she kept saying things like, there's been a lot of studies said. And I'm always, like, suspect of that when you say there's been a lot of studies. Has there? 
where are they? Is it in the psychology today? Is that where it is? Because if it's like, you know, the people from families, what is it called? Focus What's on the, the family. Focus on the family. Yeah. If it's from Focus on the Family, I'm not trusting those those data points. Right. Right. And there are no no citations, no footnotes. It is very much Donald Trump, many people are saying. Many people. And you know what? Church people do that, too. Like, when I was a pastor, people would be like, many people are saying, and I'd be like, Carol, you mean you don't like that. You can just say it, Carol. It's always Carol. There's always a Carol. And I think... It's like, I get it. Just say that because we actually like in some ways there's some grace for that too, because we're taught that we can't come out and just say, I don't like this. I do like this. You know, I think the tough part of all of this is like a lot of this is almost true. Like what she's saying is, is almost true. And so it seems, you know, you said it was relatable. I think I wanted it to be relatable. And so much of pop psychology is this way, right? Like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's how it goes. That, that feels right. That feels right. And then, oh, oh no, oh no. Right. Um, And we're taught not to trust ourselves. Like, I don't know. One of the biggest points of damage for me in choosing the evangelical way for college, at least and a little bit of grad school and a little bit like it's just in me is the inability to trust my own voice, trust that inner knowing. It's like I'm always looking for an external validation. And this chapter in particular is like you need to look for that external validation. (laughs) It's got to come from God. But yes, preferably through a man being God to you. Yeah, there's a great, there's a great way of thinking about it. Yeah. So God, obviously we can't talk directly to God, but we can, we can talk about our dads as like, uh, kind of conduits of God. Weird, weird, very weird and very, very limiting of God because just because of how it treats the creative, the creation narrative up until women. God is starting with things and he's starting small. He's getting bigger, bigger, bigger. Things are getting better, 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 better. Then he gets to man and this is like the pinnacle. And then, you know, if we continue that, then we would think, no, like, like woman is the ultimate. Woman is the- Here she comes. The final peak. Like this is, this is the best. There's not, he's done it all. There's nothing else to do. Like this is the top. This is what we were building up to. Here we go. But they're like, no, it was man. And then God was like, oh, I don't know. I feel like I forgot. So now let me pull this rib out of him and then make this little side piece, this little extra addition, this side <laughs> dish. Um, and here, here she is. But man, you're it. You're the tops. The, you are the big show. And then here's this. And it's interesting when you study other cultures that like have like matriarchy and like women as the central piece, a lot of times are psychologically better, like more, more level and grounded. Many studies have said, no, I just like read one book on it, guys. <laughs> so there is a, you know, we talked a little bit about this idea and I am going to use a word that I want to admit that I am not an indigenous person. And so when I use this word, I am not trying to be Karen who's starting, like who's speaking at like a women of worship thing, tribe, right? The word tribe. You know, that's my tribe. Nope. Uh, but like, <laughs> we don't get to do that, Karen, Brittany. Nope. Like, you can be grateful for your friends without calling them your tribe. And I get it. I used to do the same thing. Uh, we learned it in business like we learn it. But there is this incredible thing that's in Canada that is not here in the United States as far as I know. I would hope it was, but I haven't heard of it. Uh, so in Canada, there is uh, a university that has been studying the longevity of sexual satisfaction and relational satisfaction in marriages. And they have the longest longevity study. Um, the only reason I know about it is a guy I grew up with, his wife is the head uh, researcher. And they participated in this study called, like that studies what's called the all or nothing marriage. And I feel 
like when we're talking about these books, this is really what has happened. So we used to have like a group of people, right? So your husband didn't need to be everything for you. Like his attention, you didn't need to captivate him because you were getting a lot of your needs met by people in the community. We even see that like if we want to use biblically, you know, we see that, right? Like people are hanging out at fountains. They're like, not fountains, but wells. I don't know. They were not fountains, guys. They were wells. This is not the Bellagio here. Um, they're hanging out at wells. They're, um, you know, they're they're getting a lot of their needs met outside of this one-on-one situation. And so what this study has studied is people who have a reasonable expectation of my needs being met by one other person. And they're saying like, my needs cannot be met by other one other person. And so I'm not upset if this person isn't my quote unquote best friend, because I have an actual best friend who I'm not sleeping right. with. That What they've found is that this creates this really sense of satisfaction throughout, not only relationally, but sexually as well, because we're like meeting all these things. And I think this chapter in particular made me just think over and over again that some of the wounding that I at least have is that I, the Adam and Eve story is like, I'm just looking for my dude, one dude who is going to meet all of these needs. And even Adam and Eve screwed that up. So I don't know why I would think like that, by the way, I don't believe in the literal story of Adam and Eve, but that's a whole nother. Um, some people are like, that's why I'm not listening to her anymore. Turn this off. I'm done. If you weren't done earlier, <laughs> like this is your consenting moment. You have consented to this. Um, but I think these books, this chapter makes me compare myself to something that's not real and trying to fit an ideal that even these people are protesting so much, like saying, oh, this is the way it is. This is and then you like, you know, we joked about it earlier, but are they okay? <laughs> they I mean, have not. you checked in on them? How are they doing? When I mean, John Eldridge is still doing his thing and they're still like wild at heart groups meeting possibly right now. Taking a bus from Nashville to LA because that will make them uh, sow their oats and help them move into manhood. I didn't even read the book. I didn't read Wild at Heart. I did read Captivating. I should have probably no, you, read Wild at Heart. You nailed it. You know you know everything that it says. So take your worst theology on masculinity, then make it a little worse, and uh-huh. you got it. I wonder, do you think, you know, Richard Rohr would argue that we haven't given people an opportunity to step into any sort of experience of like, so I don't want to say indoctrination, indoctrination, but that's not the right word. Like a, a passing of child to whatever gender you might be. And so like a, like a ritual of something, like a ritual, like I was this and now I'm this, mm-hmm. you know, and problematically within like church culture, it's like, basically I'm going to be eating at the children's table forever. Cause I never had kids. I'm 42. Um, you know what I mean? Like, but there's this, like, we don't have these like markers to like mm-hmm. say this and this and this. And so we just compare ourselves to other people and try to figure out like, where do I compare on this grand scale? And so I think for my friends who are reading Wild at Heart, particularly for my friends who did not have good experiences with their fathers, because when I think about it, my friends that were really like captivated by the book <laughs> Wild at Heart uh, were the ones who had really difficult fathers. They weren't passive. They were borderline abusive and they read this book and they were like, oh, this book tells me I can be a man. My dad always told me I wouldn't be because I'm a musician or I'm whatever. But what if I could be? So it like reaches people at their place of pain. And I wonder if it's just because there's not a lot of other like messaging out there. Right. Because the only rituals in, in evangelicalism are marriage and children. And that that's how you become an adult woman. You've done it. You can get away from the kids table as long as you're sitting with your husband, Mm -hmm. but then you're going to have a bunch of questions about when are you going to replenish the kids table. (laughs) Um, 
So, so yeah, that's like, that's basically it. That's all you get. And it's hard to, I don't know, it's, it's, it's almost like capitalism. I don't want to participate in the system, but I have to, to mm-hmm. survive. And it's hard to watch, you know, to even watch friends who still buy into the system and still, and kind of like, you know, knowing, oh, I'm putting all this effort into this friendship. And as soon as you find someone to date, I'm going to be backburnered if I'm still on the stove at all. Yeah. It's like just watching people prioritize certain types of relationships and not out of, and because they think they're supposed to. And they're like, this is, this is how it's Well, we've internalized that idea. Like I think about, um, I have a lot of uh, relationships that are not female. So like, and you know, that always becomes suspect when the, <laughs> It's funny because the evangelical message that they don't say is like if you're spending any time with anyone of a gender that you could be attracted to, you want to sleep with them. So you can't go to lunch with anyone. Like how many evangelicals are having like sex over Denny's? Like I just don't understand why. Like I remember I was speaking at an event and this guy was like, hey, like I like you are someone who I'd want to be my pastor. But how do I explain that to my wife? Like if I'm having a, a deep like spiritual need and you and I are at lunch, like how do I explain that to my wife? And I'm like, do you want to sleep with everyone you have barbecue with? Like, because that's actually a different kind of problem. Like we equate intimacy with only one thing and then we negate the intimacy that we have that doesn't look like that. We negate the affirmation we get that isn't from that one person. So I think about for me and the internalized shit that I, like, if only if only these people would think I was great. It doesn't matter that all these other people are thinking that I'm great. And and we and this is not just evangelicalism. This is uh, Western culture where it's like, I need one person who uh, has attachment issues to also like me because I'm the one thing that changed them from their attachment issues. Literally every Hallmark movie, right? Like, this person could not attach before, but once I came into this tiny town and redid cottage house, whatever, farm. Um, and because of my trauma, we're going to trauma bond and then they're going to fulfill all of my needs. Right. And they better because I'm throwing away my whole big city life and career. And I'm living in a village where all the other women hate me because they've always loved him after his wife died. Like whatever it might be, right? Like, And I laugh at it. And yet I cry every year at Christmas because my life doesn't look like that. Right. And it's the moment of like, who's buying this book? Who's reading it? I'm thinking, maybe it could be true. And as much as I want to fight against it, if I'm not given another narrative, then this is the only narrative I have to compare myself to. And I'm stuck thinking like, you know, shit, some woman years ago asked her husband to eat an apple and now we're all fucked. (laughs) It's just like, I used to have a t-shirt I wore in seminary that had an apple with a bite out of it, the Microsoft thing. And it said, my bad, Eve. Um, Like chick just wanted a snack. And now all of a sudden like, he's considered a passive man the sin of adam is that he was passive and it's it's such a i don't know evangelicalism just has such a dark view of of everything but of humanity and like i think about the creation narrative now and also do not believe it's literal but just this idea of like imagine if god had only created adam and he's just there and then you know the snake comes tempts him and i don't even know if tempt is the right off gives him an offer because the snake didn't lie like nothing the snake said wasn't true but then imagine if adam only had this connection with god so it's just him and god and then if adam were to eat the fruit and then have that break like he would have no one and i think like it's such a beautiful thing that god like put these people so even even when i'm i I am god and i'm out of the picture because this breach is here now 
y'all still have each other and you still have someone who can understand right. and know what it is, you know, to feel this separation or to feel like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. It's this, uh, I think we read the story so weirdly. Like we, because we have this idea of what our dad should be, and what our mom should be. So dad's mad, dad's disappointed from the beginning. From the beginning of time, we share this story that God is a father who is incredibly disappointed with us. If that is your starting point of life, if you come out of the wound and the face is like disappointment, I spend my entire life trying to get the approval that I cannot get. And I can relate to that because I think, and then I try to fix it. If I read this book and if I do seven steps, then maybe, just maybe I'll be enough. And I ignore all of these friends and people who are telling me I'm enough. And I ignore all of these moments that are beautiful and wonderful because they don't look like the moment that it, they should have looked like based on these books, based on, you know, I'm waiting for the moment until I walk down my aisle and maybe I can exist before that, but maybe not. And I, I look at beauty in such a small way. Beauty is the young girl whose dad is captivated by her. Instead of beauty is this woman who has these smile marks because all she does is laugh. Like, you know, I think about my um, best friend's grandma growing up was from British Guyana and she had the most beautiful like smile marks and as a kid I remember thinking I want to smile as much as Granny K does because she's gorgeous like she was chick was in her 80s and like gorgeous and I remember just thinking I want to live a life that leaves those marks on my face but it has to look a certain way and and that's not beauty all of it is beautiful um and so we see all these like Christian influencers who have had so many fillers and Botox just to look a certain way. And I love those moments when we start to like actually celebrate the one, like the person who broke away from that and is just like living their best. <laughs> you know, I think about like Jen Hatmaker, <laughs> who is a friend, I'll admit. And so I love Jen because Jen's was like, look, friends, this is a mess. I am an absolute mess. And you're like, I like that. Right. Because you could have <laughs> gone the route of, I know how to do all this. I'm captivating, captivating, captivating. Look over here. It just feels like a magic show to me. Yeah. And exhausting. It is because it's, there's no way like these, both these books, it doesn't tell you the right way to be a woman. It just makes sure you know you're doing it wrong. Which is like exactly what she said the opposite, right? Her whole thing was like, so many books tell you how you're not good enough. This book is going to be how you're good enough. I was like, oh, I don't remember that. Like I read the intro and I was like, oh, I don't remember that it did that. Like I, I'm excited to kind of see. And then I get to chapter four and I'm like, oh, no, it's still telling me how my family made it so that I am not captivating. Yeah. And now that word yeah. is just ruined for me. <laughs> <laughs> but like I kind of want to say it more like if someone's like, how is your lunch captivating? Tell me more. No, it's just <laughs> captivating. I just saw Hamilton. It was captivating. <laughs> so, yeah. So, this book blames it, it all so. on women. On and, women and if we're just pretty enough. damaging men. Mm-hmm. So, because of what, what women did, now men are in a bad position. So, now men are doing bad things, which is now wounding more women. Women. But also, we as women... And as, as children, you know, she talks about these internal vows that we make that then also feed into our wounding. And then this is one part of the book. I'm like, oh, I do not. I do not like this where you are blaming, blaming children for trying to make the best of trying to make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. And then now I have this internal vow that is 
doing damage and is my responsibility to repent of that. Well, I think it's and, interesting because I, you know, like, I joked about it earlier, but I'm working with this great therapist right now. We're working through some childhood wounding stuff. And recently we got to a really painful place, something that I had buried for a very long time. And I looked at her and she had this like look, weird look of joy on her face. And I was like, what is happening? And she's like, I'm just so proud of you because you made these choices that you're upset about making, but you were protecting yourself. You were protecting tiny Sarah. And like, look what you did. You protected her. And now you don't have to anymore. And it was like such a different modality than you are broken, but you were broken before you even did anything. This chick Eve, who you have nothing to do with, like (laughs) she screwed it up. Now your boobs are attractive to men and everything is a problem. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of like, that's the youth group message. (laughs) Like, I don't know how apples became boobs, but I feel like it really like, there was like some sort of like, you're tempting. I don't know. Uh, But for her to say, instead of like, hey, your brokenness can be fixed this way, but hey, you made choices that kept you alive till now. Right? So when we talk about these, like, what did she call it? What was it? What did you just call it? It's the child. It's the... The internal, internal vow. Vow, that's it. The internal vow. Instead of seeing that as a like a terrible thing, but to see it as like, oh, that's how you got through trauma. And look at you now. And maybe you don't need that anymore. Maybe you don't need the story that you're not enough. Or maybe you don't need that story anymore. But man, it, it got you here. And I've always like, let's just not have, sh- like, what would it look like to let shame go? I mean, you can't sell as many like tickets to their conferences, which I feel like and maybe that's like really cynical of me, but when I read these books, I'm always like, oh, I can imagine this conference. <laughs> There's like a mirror, and at some point you like look in it. What do you see? Right? What would your ideal dad be? And strangely, it looks like your partner. That's weird. Let's not do that. But yet we do it. Yeah. Like I just literally, he enjoyed what he saw. I think I'll be like having nightmares about that. What if your dad enjoyed what he saw? What the hell? Well, she talks about, like I said, sometimes she just accidentally says things. And I think it was in like the first chapter where she talked about, because her, her story is that her mom already had two or three kids before. So, so her mom wasn't like thrilled about being pregnant, but she said Mm -hmm. like her dad, dad was over the moon to have this fourth, fourth child. And so I was like, okay. So her dad was, yeah, really enjoyed her. But then she tells a story of like when she was hitting puberty and gets her first bra and then her dad wants to take pictures of her in it. Like, you know, he's so proud of his daughter becoming a woman. I'm like, I don't, uh, Stacey, I don't know how I feel about this. I don't think. Are you okay? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Because like those moments are like, I know for my brother, so my brother, and I'm not going to tell too much on my brother, but my brother has a daughter and a son. And his daughter is now 14. And he was a, him and his wife were divorced for a long time. And so he was a single dad, but uh, started dating a friend of mine, actually. Now they're married. But it was like my brother's excitement of like, oh, she can have those conversations. And not because there was shame around it. It was more just like, I don't know what it's like to be PM at, like, I have no idea. And I want to be there for her. And because my ex-sister-in-law, who's a wonderful mom, she really is, but she grew up in the evangelical community, so she didn't want to talk to her about it. Like, didn't want to talk to her about period stuff, didn't want to talk to her about all this stuff, because grew up with, like, that's not appropriate. 
And that was the thing I think I learned when I moved to the South is like a lot of the conversations I felt like aren't appropriate, but like, what does that even mean? And also like, I think they are appropriate. When are you, how are you not going to talk about puberty or a bra, but like, don't take a photo. Like, don't make it weird where you're like, I can't talk about you having boobs, but don't make it like a celebratory moment. Like, yeah, that was a tell. (laughs) That's a, yeah. You're like, that's, oh, are you, you're not okay. You're not okay. Well, and like Donald Trump's obsession with his daughter is weird. He's proud of her because she's beautiful. That's weird. And he, I mean, he takes everything to just an insane level. But yeah, the things that he has said, and he's not even truly religious anything, but like it's so, evangelicalism is so weird when you step back and look at it. And again, this obsession with making things, all things into one. So, you know, it's not enough that I can believe, okay, yeah, there's God and there's Jesus and the Holy Spirit. No, you have to believe that they're also one. And now... You also have to be good with, again, yes, Jesus is your savior. He is your bridegroom. He's kind of your brother and also your father. And it's and like, your friend. Right. And he has to be all of these things to you in whatever different moment. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not good. And it doesn't, it's not helpful to then be mapping that onto human people. And so my father is my, this is where I learn. How are we not to be how disappointed to flirt with people? And how right. to, you know, relate to men in this way that's going to get me married? So, like, this no. is very strange. Yeah, it's it it feels like she was working her daddy issues out. That's what this if I had this like if I was going to write an Amazon review is like she's working her daddy issues out. Like the way that her dad disappointed her, the way that her dad didn't disappoint her. And but our understanding of what it means to be female and I think we're I think we're in a time that's so interesting because we've been told. We've been told for so long. And I've bought into it. There are times sometimes where I'm like, where did I get that idea? Where did I get that idea that I had to, you know, I recently shared with a friend when I was in middle school and high school, I learned to count the number of times I answered questions because I didn't want to seem like a smarty pants because girls shouldn't be smarty pants. And I also learned like when I started to date, I learned how to like fake neediness because I was told that if a man doesn't feel like they're needed, they won't stick around. So I used to, you know, there were times when I did need someone, but there were things that were so like I could have done it, but I acted like, Oh, I don't know how to do that. And the sad part is, is I began to believe I don't know how to do that. And and instead of this like beautiful, like, ah, you're powerful. And I think sometimes like TV shows and stuff that I've started to show stronger women hit me in such an interesting way where I'm like, I wish that had been true for me. I wish I could have been more embodied in that way. I wish I could have shown up fully and felt like I would have been accepted. And I'm jealous of that character. It is an interesting time to to kind of, to be watching the culture shift and Mm -hmm. to be like, right, right in the middle of it. To be like, oh, yeah, I missed out. I missed all of that. But somehow, somehow we did catch on to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're kind of living ahead of the moment and kind of like ahead of our time where it's like, oh, like I felt these things or I believe these things. I was acting in this way and it was not approved of. But now the world is changing and we're seeing more of that. And so, like, I'd be fascinated to see, like, if they had to sit down and write these books today, what they would say because both of these books hold so heavily to to like movies and like 
Wild at Heart especially way more movie references than any kind of scriptural references. <laughs> and like one of their big, big kind of pillars of their whole theology is like, well, see, see how movies all follow this kind of narrative and movies are always about, you know, damsels in distress and princesses and being rescued and all of this. Like that is proof that this is how things are. Like these, these stories are just written on our heart. We know, we know stories go like this because this is the way stories are supposed to go. And so like, I'd be fascinated to see like what, how would they deal with Disney now? You know, when they're getting away from the princess narratives and these stories are changing. I feel like they would have to then try to say, oh no, this is the secular world, you know. Well, and I think that's why narrative. womanist theology frightens the shit out of people. Because we're, we're talking about people's stories that we just avoided and ignored. Look, my faith journey is, is, is real weird. But I, whenever I try to just like walk away from it in totality, I'll hear like Dr. Will Gaffney give a sermon and I'm like, shoot, that feels, that feels like something, right? Like there, it's frightening because it like mashes down this idea that like, you know, the white male is like all of us are trying to be a white male. Like if we can just get to that, uh, which is like a really weird vibe, but this idea that our, that this story really is for and about the oppressed, real oppressed, not like, cause you couldn't have your Bible out on the subway or whatever it is that's pissed you <laughs> off this week. I think there, there's just such an opportunity in these times and it's scary. Like my friends are raising girls right now and I'm just like, how is that going? Yeah. You know? teaching them consent and their power and yet trying to like, but also like maybe when an authority figure tells you not to do that, she's like, I'm proud of my daughter for flipping her off. But also that's not exactly how that's going to work in the corporate world. But is it okay that that doesn't work in the corporate world? Like I, I think it's, it's fascinating to watch. It's hard to watch. I would say, I'll be honest. I think if she was to write this book today, she'd write it the exact same way. Probably. I mean, probably because she, their worldview is their worldview and they are they do not nothing else even occurs to them mm -mm. and I think no you're right <laughs> they probably would write it the exact same way and double down on it because I would hope if this book came out today there would just be more pushback up front instead of kind of the wholehearted welcome that it received and so then I think they would just yeah double down and, and add that to the persecution narrative like this is I was gonna say that's like such a great thing to choose because you can just prove it yourself right over and over again. Like it's so good. Like the more they hate it, the more we know it's for the world, not of the world. You know? Right. Right. And they hate like, it because they know it's true and they mm -hmm. just don't want And it. I think there are things that like when we have to like face it at first, we're like, oh, I don't know. But I definitely, you know, this going backwards to this like understanding where, you know, we're all damsels in distress just waiting for our prince to come. It's scary. And it's, the book is just reductive anyway. And it's, it's so sad because it thinks that it's not. Yeah, I don't think they're super villains. And they sat down and they said, nah. ha ha, let's, let's destroy women. Let's. No. She wrote this and really believed it. Might still believe it. And that is, that's the saddest part. It is the saddest part. My friend texted me yesterday to say that he was at like a winery and overhearing these older folks talking. And they were talking about how, why they weren't with their kids for Thanksgiving. And my friend perked up because he knows the work that I do. And he was like, they were saying, well, our kids said that we can't be with them until we 
Like they walked away from the church and they've kind of walked away from us. And now our kids are saying that we do things like trigger them. And like they were just kind of like, well, we've done everything. We've tried to do everything. And they did. They they used these kind of books to try and then kind of haven't allowed themselves to be influenced by. And, and it's so funny. We use the word influence. And I don't know if your brain, but my brain, when I think about through like the spiritual narrative, when I hear the word influence is a bad thing. I shouldn't be influenced by the world, quote unquote. I shouldn't be influenced by. I just need to hold to the truth. And I am imagining these parents were like, I don't know how to like hold to the truth with my kids. You're not together on Thanksgiving because your kids set a boundary and you were like, no, I want to break that boundary. And then you ended up at a winery with your friends, which maybe that's what you needed. But also it's because they double down on this stuff. Right. Which is so... It's just so weird because evangelicalism does all this harm. And then it, it continually just blames it, blames it on the victims. But it's like, you know, wild at heart, he wrote because he was mad at how feminine Christian men had become and how, you know, the feminization of the church. I'm like, how did that, how did that happen? Because at no point have women been in charge of the evangelical church. So if it was too feminine, men did that, you did that. So how are we to blame for that? You know, with Christian parents, it's just weird that you would, you indoctrinate your children so you teach them things. And then it's strange to you that what I believed at age eight and age 10, you used to know the truth. I was eight. I was a child. Like I knew your truth. Right. And you think like that would be the better option to you. Like that would make more sense to you if I still thought the same way I thought. Well, that's the not allowing ourselves to progress or change. I remember uh, I was dating an evangelical guy for a while and he, he broke up with me because, and I quote, my tribe and his tribe would not get along and we were getting pretty serious, he felt like. And because my tribe includes LGBTQIA and, you know, various forms of folks who are in different parts of faith journey or not, you know, and he worked for this huge non-denom here. And I said, you really think that our our relationship you and I should be affected by how your people feel about my people aren't your people gonna shift because some of my people used to feel that way about people but they've they've shifted our friendship isn't based on having the same doctrines because if it did it'd be problem like you know my friend Kevin or your friend Kevin our friend Kevin they've changed they are like they used to be the most bible thumping conservative Christian. And if, if they never changed and wasn't open to difference. And I I just think we've, I've gotten to this point where difference is problematic instead of like, Oh, like, I think at first it was like cute, like progressives were like, well, we're not all that different. But the truth is like, no, we are different. Like my story is different than yours, but that doesn't make one better than the other. It's just like, how do we recognize in our differences? And then you come along and everything needs to fit into this, like this is what a passive dad creates. This is and like women's stories aren't valued and men get to decide what a woman. And then I go to, I used to go as a lead pastor. I would go to these conferences cause I had to, to keep our grant. I would have to go to these conferences and every single guy that got on the stage would talk about how his wife actually ran the church. Like every time I'd be like, my wife, who we all know actually runs a church and everyone in the audience would be like, oh, that's so funny because she keeps a schedule and she actually makes things happen. And I'm like, is it funny? Because I'm just like <laughs> looking for, like I'm straight, but I, 
kind of think it sounds like I need a wife. Like, <laughs> like I don't, what is happening? And then you think about like boys' brains or like tiny eight-year-old you, six, six-year-old you, like hearing that over and over again, how does it not affect us? Right. But you were in progressive circles because the conferences I was at, all the men were saying about their wives was that she's smoking hot. Oh, no, it was always smoking hot and runs the church. <laughs> My favorite was this guy literally got up and was, like, talking about how he used to be addicted to porn, but then he got an accountability buddy and how his wife, who was standing there right beside him, was super hot. And he's like, whenever I was super addicted to porn, I was cheating on her. By the way, the dude was ripped, which is to me like, oh, you had one addiction, you went for another. Uh, and he was just like, and then, you know, I didn't even watch the movie 300 because – there was nudity in it. And literally, my boss, who is hilarious at the time, stood up and was like, uh, this guy's a martyr because he wouldn't see side boob? Like, what is happening? <laughs> like, because the problem is that he's still objectifying women. Like, the problem with porn, there's not really a problem with porn unless it's objectifying human humanity across the right. board. And giving us an unrealistic... It's the same as this book. This book is evangelical porn. Like, giving us an idea that we need to live up to that is impossible and never existed in the first place. And then we feel every experience we have that is outside of this is less than and not important and, and is wrong and all this sort of stuff. It's the same with porn. Uh, it gives us this idea of what, you know, connection should look like. If it doesn't look like that, then it's not hot enough or whatever, right? So he hasn't stopped. The problem is not that he was watching porn. The problem is that he still views women as things to be used, manipulated, treated harshly, and thrown away. Because he's still talking about his wife like she's a piece of meat. And she's standing there smiling and everyone's laughing because he used to have a porn addiction. And they're clapping for him for not going to see 300. Like, you can't respect your wife and and see another person's body? Like, it makes it sound like every man is out there just trying to, like, hump anything. And, like, again, it makes sex into this, like, commodity. It makes bodies into a commodity and again it's just constant comparison like when she said this whole thing about you know I was hiding my beauty under my weight like it's so weird are you beautiful because you were skinny are you like what isn't beauty just something that always is not with these these folks and it's so I love that that this yeah this is evangelical porn because it is it is very male focused it is very possible for a wild at heart man to live a fulfilling life without a woman, honestly. You know, the three things a man wants, you know, an, an adventure to live, a battle to fight, and then a beauty a beauty to, to rescue in the original version, and now it's been updated to a beauty to love. But, like, the man's question <laughs> for is, do aggression. I have what it takes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the woman's question is, Am I lovely? Like that, that is what they say. That's, that's all we're asking. Ultimately, that's all we really want to know. And so a man, two thirds of his wants are, you know, adventure and a battle and whatever. And if a woman comes along, great. It's probably going to be more trouble than it's worth. Cause honestly, even, you know, these chicks or whatever, but for a woman based on these books, like it's impossible for a woman to live a fulfilled life without the input and approval of a man that's a word that is really hard is approval and it's the hardest it's the hardest approval to get it is the the dad who ignores is the trope in this like the dad who isn't present is the trope in this 
And yet men are not taught how to be present because he's supposed to be out there living the adventure so he can like kill the thing and bring it back for us to eat. It's like the weirdest like ideas around this. And it just capitulates this like idea that I'm just waiting for my rescuer. It is, you know, it's, it's almost like pretty woman. Like I think about the, how much that movie affected me as a teenager. Like I was a kid when it came out, but, um, that like, you know, someone can rescue me in a, in a, might be a limo instead of a horse, but I'm just waiting to be rescued. And every book I read in college in my Christian group was about waiting for someone to see me and being lovely enough that they would like what they saw. And that doesn't, my gaze doesn't matter at all. How I see myself doesn't matter at all. It's always the external gaze, which is a dangerous gaze to be hoping for because it changes. And it changes. Yeah. So and this book. <laughs> <laughs> and that is you as an attractive white woman. Like Oh, oh, right. Yeah, don't. This book is not for you. It is not for you. It's not for me as a woman who has multiple degrees. <laughs> it is it's for the person who's wondering, am I enough? Right. Which we're all we're all wondering, and and evangelicalism is and tricky in that it has it has shame for everyone, and so even <laughs> even you know as someone who nobody gets it, out nobody nobody no one escapes unscathed like you are going to be shamed about something, I mean just because it doesn't deal with sexuality well at all, so as soon as you hit puberty and have any kind of sexual thought any kind of sexual feeling you're already on the shame train and going wherever it's taking you. And then, you know, even if you live up to the standards and you're not doing anything, then at some point it flips. So then now you have the shame of, oh, I am so far behind. Like, mm-hmm. there are things that I should know that I don't know. And things that now it's shameful to try to learn. Because how old are you? What? How do you not know this? How have you not done this? It's How the you... separation of yourself from other people and the constant comparison. Yeah. But we, I mean, that's not just the church. It's unfortunately like how the marketing world works, right? Like I need to convince you of what your problem is and that I can fix it and for you. evangelicalism, the problem is your humanity. Right. Like, yeah. Your problem is your humanity. The one thing you can't get rid of. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, congratulations. <laughs> the problem, you're the problem. Like, Taylor Swift is right. Like, Taylor Swift, she's like, make fun of her if you will, but chick's writing some deep shit that we are missing (laughs) because I'm the problem is literally what every marketing campaign, every sermon, every book within all of this is trying to convince us. I'm the problem, but don't worry. The solution is Jesus. How? I don't want to talk about it. It just is. What? (laughs) It just is. But not really, though, because, you know, what Adam and Eve did... For all of time, we're still grappling with it. And I thought what Jesus did was supposed to be kind of canceling that out or repaying that debt. But also that like doesn't make sense if you wander. Yeah, you can't wander down that too far because penal (laughs) substitution is weird as hell. Like, have you ever tried to explain it to friends that like have zero Christian background? It's the best. Like, so you're saying God created people with this like problem that they like Mm -hmm. sin, but then God had to create a way to punish them without punishing them. Right. 
And so made another person. <laughs> another person. <laughs> this guy this guy feels real inefficient. <laughs> like what and he still will punish you if you don't hear about this guy and believe in him in the proper way. Right. But it's he but this guy to- this guy seemed to really not like that. Like he wasn't really into strict rules, but we should have strict rules about him, which is mm-hmm. very confusing. Because he healed people who didn't believe, but like now we say only those who believe. It's like it's like the weirdest environment. And yes. and it I find that if you just pull a Jesus move, which is like Jesus just questioned constantly, like, oh, so so you're saying like God had to smite Jesus because because of the flood what is happening like do you, do you understand it still comes back to like god's a dick like, like there's no way there's no way around it mm-mm. he's not not a great great god i'm gonna say he's just not i don't know um, it's who you are just kidding <laughs> but if we're le- using things like dad that, language you know it's if we're using the dad language, like if my dad doesn't find me captivating, my heavenly father at the very onset says I'm not enough. That's right. We are a bunch of damaged people walking around trying to fit in, which is true. We are. Cause my, my heavenly father would like to find me captivating, but he can't until I am drenched in the blood of his son and grateful for it. And yeah, reaffirming my belief in it day to day. And feeling like anything that happens to me, you know, is for the good. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something. You asked me to give it a ranking from one to ten. Harmful for everyone, beneficial for everyone. I think this book is harmful for everyone. (laughs) Is there a negative rank? No. (laughs) So, a one. It's coming in i'm coming in i'm coming in one or two i'm coming in two because i'm canadian so i don't want to like claim the one because that feels too aggressive i'm gonna come in two because there's like one person that this might help i don't know who they are person Ooh, thoughts and prayers because if this book is helping tmp tmp all right so one i'm assuming you would not recommend it to anyone but maybe someone doing like a study like a researcher like, you want to know what patriarchy looks like? Merp. <laughs> you want to know what grooming looks like? Boop. <laughs> Oop, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to know what, uh, what women participating in the systems that are oppressing them looks like, here you go. Here it is. There also, it is. it's super expensive on Amazon. I, like, tried to look it up. Because, um, like, when was this written? And, uh, like, you can get it for, like, $36. If you want oh, the hardcover version. The hardcover? I do not. <laughs> you do if not, you're wondering. You do not want that. No. Mm-mm. No. If anybody wants to read this, uh, please reach out to me and I will direct you. <laughs> but, yeah, do not. <laughs> do not buy this book. Uh-uh. So, instead of captivating, what is something a woman constructed and or woman focused that you would recommend? There, I was thinking about this. So, I, I, you know, the academic in me wants to say Dr. Will Gaffney's work is incredible. It gives us a different way of looking at some of the stories that have been particularly harmful for women and um, particularly harmful for black women. So I, I love her work. But also, like, Lizzo. Like, I, this idea 
that a song isn't about some love that she lost, but the power that it reminded her of. Like, it's about damn time. Just this idea that, like, I can both be vulnerable, because some of her music is very vulnerable about, like, oh, I wish, you know. And also, I'm powerful. There are days that I'm powerful. And I am no less lovable in any of those days. And I think that it's, you know, it, it sounds weird, but that has been a, an odd joy to listen to Lizzo's music every now and then and just be like, oh, the, I would recommend Lizzo and Dr. Will Gaffney. But also, um, I think, and a work by Dr. Hillary McBride, um, Mothers and Daughters. She writes a lot about, um, I would say, a healthier perspective of uh, femininity and embodiment. Um, what does it mean to exist in a body that you feel is feminine? And I think that also goes for our trans friends who are trans women. What does it mean to be embodied as a woman? So Dr. Hillary McBride's work is really great. Yeah. And, you know, there's a movie too. <laughs> this is this is probably a little bit of a tell, but have you ever seen Under the Tuscan Sun? Um, what's her face? Yes. I won't remember, but yes. Um, but it's this, it's this non-traditional love story. So she's trying so hard to find the traditional love story and instead finds this story of immense love. And I think it's helpful for us to reframe this idea of one man one woman and it has to look like I'm captivated by you and you alone because that's when we start to have the scarcity mindset and we start to compare ourselves and we start to kind of claw our way that like trope woman who's so afraid that her man is going to leave at any moment because she's not captivating enough so that book and also the one man one woman by a certain age yeah because she's older and her husband leaves her for a younger woman that's how it starts uh and then her journey to like uh, finding herself in some ways. And I I loved that. And, you know, also, like, the work of Glennon Doyle, uh, I've appreciated her a lot. The work of Brene Brown. And I'm saying women all particularly because I think sometimes we need to be healed by other women because we have been ingesting male uh, narratives for a really long time, whether we realize it or not. And we have a confirmation bias that says that most of the stories we hear are feminine stories. They're not. They're actually masculine. And so... I'm giving women examples, but Bernie Brown, Glennon Doyle, um, as a queer woman, has some really interesting things. And someone who tried to pass as not a queer woman for a long time. I just love their work because it's it uh, pushes some of the boundaries that we think need to exist. So I think those are helpful recommendations as I look at my bookshelf. And then here's one that's like a little bit of a personal one. I have a friend, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Mor- uh, Morgan Harper Nichols. So friend of mine who lives used to live around here and um her poetry and imagery feels very empowering to me as a neuro is she's neurodivergent black woman uh who is just she's lovely to be honest and her sister is also neurodivergent and they they just create really fascinating things but her art also feels like a helpful re-narration of this scarcity and I've got to by this time be this person it's sort of a slowdown and so I'd recommend her and then also uh, Body Becoming by Dr. Now Roberto although Robin will be on the cover Henderson Espinosa that's a good book too all great recommendations thanks for having me on this absolutely thanks for saying yes to this absolutely. extra dollop of trauma <laughs> <laughs> like I said I have a great therapist I'm paying way too much money so it's good 
Well, I'm just trying to do my part to make sure, yeah, you're getting your money's worth from your therapist. Totally. Any closing thoughts, final thoughts? Hey, this, it might sound ridiculous, but this book is going to tell you that you're enough if, but you're just enough. And like this idea of this like broken person who has to be fixed, we all have pain we all have these things, but I think we've just for too long believed that it was like you're enough if, if you have the right relationship with God, the right relationship with the man who's captivated by you. Instead of like, what if like the starting point is you're enough? That's it. That's it. So that would be my book and it's not very long. (laughs) You're enough. That's it. And in closing. But the wounds don't stop once we are grown up. Some of the most crippling and destructive wounds we receive come much later in our lives. The wounds that we have received over our lifetimes have not come to us in a vacuum. There is, in fact, a theme to them, a pattern. The wounds you have received have come to you for a purpose from one who knows all you are meant to be and fears you. So reading Wild at Heart and Captivating concurrently and alternating between the two, as opposed to doing all 12 chapters of one and then all 12 chapters of the other, has helped make it really easy to see how much of Captivating really is just a copy and paste of Wild at Heart, but for girls. And maybe it was intentional so good complementarian Christian couples can read their respective books and have something to talk about. Or maybe it was just lazy. And John was thinking about his creation the same way he thinks God thinks about his, right? That the book for men was the masterpiece and the book for women ah, it's just an optional add-on a pretty little accent piece that has no real need for any kind of independent thought because this chapter this chapter was a void chapter four of wild at heart was where it became really evident to me that john eldridge and his book do not like women and chapter four of this book drove that home both by what was said and what wasn't In Wild at Heart, John had so much energy for the ways women, mothers specifically, ruin men by smothering them and not letting fathers take the lead. And then in this chapter, he says that women get their sense of value and get their all-important question answered primarily by fathers. And then he blames mothers for not protecting daughters from the damage done by bad fathers. So mothers ruin boys by not letting fathers do things their way, and then they ruin girls by not stopping fathers from doing things their way. It is maddening. This chapter is a parade of stories of women with bad fathers. There's Sandy, who had an abusive father, and a weak mother. Weak. Sandy's father would beat Sandy's mother, but John Stacy doesn't call her mother abused. They call her weak. And when they get to the part of Sandy's story where her father begins to abuse her and her sister, John Stacy blames the mother for not protecting them. And while obviously there's room for that conversation about Sandy's mother and the responsibility she has to bear, they have way more to say about her lack of reaction than the clearly evil actions of Sandy's father. And that's how the stories in this chapter go. John Stacy lists the ways various men fail their various daughters and then blames mothers for not stopping the fathers, blames daughters for having reactions that make them less vulnerable and therefore less womanly as adults, and then, of course, blames the fall and Adam and Eve for the evil that men do. One of the stories involves a woman that John Stacy says, we'll call Melissa. Which leads me to wonder, am I supposed to believe the stories up to this point have been using real names? Because this is after Sandy's story. So if this is going to require a pseudonym, well damn, I was bracing myself for I don't even know what, but definitely something extra evil. But it turns out that Melissa's wound was delivered the same day she was, and that her parents already had a girl and were hoping for a boy, so her father didn't even want to hold her at the hospital. And then Melissa spent her childhood wishing to be a boy, 
praying every night to be given a penis, and then crying every morning when she would wake up without one. And John Stacy are obviously unaffirming in all ways and completely ill-equipped to deal with trans issues with any kind of empathy or sense. But that sounds like gender dysphoria to me. And I think it is, and I think they know that it is because of their strange and sudden compulsion to flag this comparatively not very bad story with a pseudonym. And then a few pages later, they mention Melissa again and they say, Melissa's mother was a wicked woman who beat her children with a wooden rod. Which, not great at all. And also, comparatively, not the worst parent in this chapter, not even close, but somehow she is the only one tagged as wicked. So you have a chapter full of awful fathers who were just fallen men, but the mothers, they are weak, they are failures for not protecting their daughters, and they are wicked. Y'all, these books hate women, hates them, and finds ways to blame them for everything, while holding men accountable for nothing. And I expect that from John, no surprise there. But Stacy, I just, I have to ask, hey girl, are you okay? Every chapter gives special little glimpses that answer that question with a resounding no. And in this chapter, it was the way you talked about hiding in closets as a child. And then as an adult in confrontations with John, you or one of you referred to him as a strong and forthright husband who is not afraid of confrontation welcomes it even. And it made me think about his consistent disdain and wild at heart for the idea of nice and nice men. And I think he's just not a nice man and that he's well aware that he's not and has written these books to justify himself. And I continue to wish that both of you had just gone to therapy and not the kind of Christian counseling that someone like John was qualified to do, the real kind. But you didn't, and here we are. And as Madeleine Albright once said, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women, and girl, in living with John Eldridge, you have clearly been there for a long, long time. Thank you for joining me for this chapter of Captivating. I certainly hope you had a better time listening than I did reading. Bad Words is an irreverent media podcast, a Legata Scratch production, and a God is Not Given side hustle. Produced by Janice Legata and made possible by the generous support of Jodly and Jodwilly patrons like Megan. Thank you. Megan. If you're enjoying this season, please let the people know by leaving a rating or review. And if you'd like more info on how to become a monthly supporter and get access to bonus episodes, hit the show notes for the links. And until we meet again, take care of you and be well. I am Janice Legata, and this has been an episode of Bad Words, but here are some good ones. I think it's this comparison story. I think it's the do I measure up. You know, there is this trope of the jealous woman who is always angry because her her partner, her lover is paying attention to someone else. And it harms both male and female. Because I think about like living where I live and these men feel like they have to have younger and like constantly, right? Like it's this weird dynamic we've created where women's value is based on what other like it's like a we constantly are comparing ourselves and it it feels like a bleed out it feels like I can't enjoy the the loveliness of my friends because it somehow affects and harms the ability for me to be lovely and I think and for you know it's like this scarcity mindset that a book like this creates and so I think that's the thing am I enough and do I belong is this comparison instead of being able to like embrace who I am and my own and trust myself. I think there's two things. One is this comparison and the other is like to learn to trust 
our inner knowing. It's hard to oppress people who are not going to buy into the story you're telling them because they trust themselves.